The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell Christ our living head Will one day come again To judge the living and the dead I believe and trust in Him I will trust in my Redeemer Sing of His love that lasts forever Know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my foundation I will trust in Him I will trust in Him Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album Order of Service By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Iesus. The English transliteration for Iesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. As stated in an earlier episode discussing types and shadows, when we study all of scripture, we tend to see that indeed God seems to create all things according to a pattern which testifies of Him. As we continue to look and study the visible and invisible things of creation, we are able to increasingly see God's reflection to some degree in that mirror. When these examples occur within Scripture, we characteristically refer to them as types or shadows. We shall also see that ultimately, as with all scripture, that these types and shadows point to the substance, which is Jesus. In the previous seven episodes, we took an in-depth examination of the various types, shadows, and the substance which were revealed by God through the book of Exodus, beginning with chapter 1 and continuing through chapter 14. In doing so, we saw how God used the historical saga of Israel's entrance, bondage, and eventual deliverance from Egypt by Moses 
parallels and in fact foreshadows its substance, depicting all God's people who have entered into bondage of sin and are delivered from their sin through grace, by faith, in the finished work and imputed righteousness of Jesus. In this episode, we continue our series with Exodus chapter 15. In verse 27, we read, quote, And they came to Elam, where were twelve wells of water, and threescore and ten palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters, unquote. Verse 27 gives confirmation that the above premise is on target. First, let us consider the Hebrew word translated Elam. The word Elam has the root meaning ram, pillar, door, post, strongman, or mighty tree. The term three score and ten is another way of saying seventy. In context, what we learn is that having come to Elam, i.e. the ram, pillar, door, post, strongman, or mighty tree, we have applied the great and glorious name Yeshua, Jesus. Having come to Elam, we have gone from being empty of instruction, without water, to now having access to sweet flowing water. In order to demonstrate conclusively that we are in fact filled, we find twelve wells of water at Elam. In other words, there is a well for each of the twelve tribes, showing that all God's people are provided for. In addition, we find 70 palm trees located at Elam. Palm trees provide shelter as well as the potential for food in the form of dates. Here we find 70 palms. The number 70 is a perfected multiple of the number 7, which is itself a number associated with perfection. Thus, the twelve wells combined with the palms indicate that having come to Elam, God's people will be provided every need for their journey to the promised land, i.e. heaven. In chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, we read, quote, And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fourteenth day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. By reviewing the Jewish calendar, we learn that the fifteenth of the month would have been celebrated as a Sabbath, i.e. a day of rest. Given the fact that they would have reached the two-month anniversary of freedom from the bondage in Egypt, we would expect to see thanksgiving and praise. Instead, we find the following, quote, The whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, 
I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no, unquote. Eventually, in verses 13 through 15, we read, quote, And it came to pass that at the even the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay round about the host. And when the dew that lay it was gone up, behold, upon the face of the wilderness there lay a small round thing, as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, It is manna, for they wist not what it was. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat, unquote. Interestingly, the Targums give commentary on this issue, providing a very important answer to the question, why? In this case, we are told that the murmuring against Moses and Aaron was because the bread which Israel had brought with them from Egypt had now run out. This in turn also provides a great insight insofar as our type is concerned. Bread is a prime example of physical nourishment. It is also clear from Scripture that bread is a metaphor type for spiritual nourishment. Here, Israel complains against Moses and Aaron because the physical bread which they had brought from Egypt has now run out. Apparently, many if not all in Israel, had been in Egypt so long that their philosophy was that it was all right for men, women, and children to be in bitter bondage to heathen masters, to work tirelessly building the city where they were enslaved, and to have their male children thrown into the Nile River and drowned, so long as they who were allowed to live were well fed. Likewise, having witnessed the nine miraculous judgments against Egypt, having walked through the waters on dry land, having seen those same waters destroy the armies of Egypt in one day, being led by a pillar of fire and cloud, and having just watched bitter waters turned sweet, Israel had now concluded that God had abandoned them to die of hunger. However, before we judge Israel too harshly, let us remember that in our story, Israel is also the type of all God's people who are set apart, chosen, called out to follow their deliverer to the promised land. Having said this, how often are we guilty of forgetting God's miraculous hand of deliverance from our bondage of sin in Egypt? How often do we complain against God because while we may have run out of our own resources prepared in Egypt, we have not yet to take hold or even imagine the resources which are at God's disposal. As we continue in verse 4, we read, Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. 
Verse 4 gives us the contrast to verses 1 and 3 above. We have the bread from Egypt, and we have the bread from heaven. Both types of bread were able to physically sustain those who ate them. The issue was that Israel had run out of their bread supply from Egypt because they had left Egypt. The only way to continue that regular supply of bread would have been to remain in bondage to Egypt as the price of eating Egypt's bread. If Israel was going to remain free of Egypt, they would now need to place themselves into subservience to another source of authority for their nourishment. In this case of Egypt, Israel had partaken of the bread of Egypt for 400 years. While the bread and nourishment of Egypt had done its job to physically sustain Israel, nevertheless, the children of Israel, God's people, continued to experience death. With the bread from heaven, manna, Israel would likewise continue to be sustained in the wilderness over the next 40 years. Despite the fact that this bread was from heaven, God's people Israel continued to physically die. The question arises then, what's the difference? It would appear from the earthly standpoint that whether we eat the bread of Egypt and remain in bondage, or eat the bread from heaven, we will physically die. This is true, but what of our spirit? Herein lies the difference. Egypt is the type of sin, of rebellion, of bondage to sin, the separation and the inability to worship and fellowship with God. As a result, mankind may eat all the bread of Egypt he may possibly consume, fill himself, and still be empty. Though man fills himself with his bread day after day, he will still hunger and eventually die in Egypt as a slave. Conversely, it requires Moses, who is the type of Jesus, to deliver and reconcile his people from Egypt, i.e. sin, by grace through faith in his power. It is by the same power, mercy, and grace that Jesus now becomes that bread, i.e. manna, which comes from heaven to sustain us day by day as we fellowship with him and he abides with us. Paul the Apostle verifies the substance of the manna under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-3 through 3, as follows. Quote, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did eat the same spiritual meat. Unquote. Jesus himself comments on the substance of the manna this way in John chapter 6, verses 32 through 58. Quote, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. 
Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have an everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And that bread I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever." The fact that the Israelites would be required to depend on the manna from heaven for their daily sustenance in conjunction with the passage from John connecting the two raises another likely substance to the type. Jesus is the manna which came down from heaven which sustains and fills those who partake. Obviously, in order to be sustained, 
we must partake of that bread. Secondly, unless we partake in faith in his all-sufficient grace and righteousness, then by default, whether we know it or not, we are still eating the stale bread of Egypt. This mindset of the need and ability to daily sustain ourselves in fellowship with God by manna while walking in the wilderness of this world is reminiscent of the same mindset by which Scripture adjures those who follow Jesus to partake of communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23-26 through 26 say this, quote, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup which he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come." Ultimately, the type of manna demonstrates the substance for the recipe which constitutes the relationship between faith and fellowship with God. Like the manna in the wilderness, we cannot rely on yesterday's faith to sustain us and keep us in fellowship. Neither can we gather faith today in anticipation of living without active faith tomorrow. Instead, we must each gather manna daily, just as we each live daily through grace, by faith, in Jesus who is that manna and who sustains us despite being in the wilderness. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 say, Quote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith." Continuing in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, we read, And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of God and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is it that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river. Take it in thy hand, and go. 
Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come out water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Unquote. Based on the above verses, it is difficult to say what, if any meaning or reason, there might be for the absence of water, much less the resulting incident with the rock and Horeb. Fortunately, the Targums give additional commentary, which provide insight to this incident. Quote, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed from the desert of sin by their journeyings according to the word of the Lord, and they encamped in Rephidim, a place where their bands were idle in the commandments of the law, and the fountains were dry, and there was no water for the people to drink, unquote. So the first key to understanding this event is the Hebrew word Rephidim, which can be translated as, quote, rests, stays, or resting places, unquote. This translation, along with the commentary from the Targums, suggests that the congregation of Israel had encamped and taken rest in a place where they were idle and following the commandments of the law. In this place, ironically called, quote-unquote, rest, Israel discovers, perhaps not surprisingly, that the fountains are dry and there is no water for the people to drink. Now granted, we know that the Old Testament places a great deal of focus on the law, the Ten Commandments, and the ordinances. However, from a New Testament standpoint... God gives us revelation of the law, the Ten Commandments, and the ordinances, which have a more specific focus according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Quote, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Unquote. Also, according to Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 23, quote, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin." But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God." Clearly, unless we take a much broader theological view of Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, we are left with the idea that Israel had the ability to keep the Ten Commandments. This is obviously a gross error because the above verses and a myriad of others make it a painful reality that no one is able to keep 100% of God's law. We also know that based upon James chapter 2, 
Verse 10, anything less than 100% is unacceptable to God. Quote, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all, unquote. The question is then, if keeping part or all of the law is not the root of this incident, then why do the Targums mention it? If keeping the law isn't at the heart of the matter, then what is? In order to answer the question and solve the riddle, let's ask a question. Quote, Under what circumstances, if any, does God's word, the Bible, reveal that any person has been justified before God? Unquote. Remember, being justified or justification is simply another word which is simply defined as an act of God whereby any person is made or accounted as being just or free of guilt or penalty due to sin. The answer to our question is revealed in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. Quote, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, unquote. Having answered the question, what we learn in context is that no man or woman is able to fulfill any or all of the law and thereby be justified as righteous before God. Instead, in every case, no matter how hard, how long, or how sincerely we try, we each and every one find ourselves condemned as having fallen short of God's glory and righteousness. What Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 and other verses demonstrate is that man can only fulfill the law of righteousness if we walk after the Spirit. So the next question is, how do we achieve walking after the Spirit? Romans chapter 8 verses 9 through 11 come to the rescue with the answer. Quote, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Unquote. The conclusion is that while God's law is holy and good, it nonetheless inevitably has the unavoidable effect of demonstrating how fully inadequate man is of living up to being God's image bearer based on our own merits.
rather than God's law being the vehicle of man's success, it is in reality intended to be the vehicle of man's surrender. It is precisely this desire and willingness to turn from the pursuit of our own righteousness and works to the recognition, acquiescence, and acceptance of the gift of Jesus' imputed righteousness which defines the event called repentance. It is this sincere repentance coupled with faith in Jesus' finished work which initiates a relationship wherein our old nature is crucified and buried with Jesus while we have a new nature implanted through his resurrection. This new nature is facilitated and maintained by God's Spirit breathed into those who abide in faith in Jesus. For the time this concludes this episode, please join me again for part 9. Now if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore yeshua at yahoo.com That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com Thank you for listening. Trust